I found it intriguing that many technology books, they usually start with a little bit of history and then it always starts like in the 20th century, as if that's when his history started. If you look at whatever topic in a much wider historical context, you get very different answers and things become really new in a way because we invented many, many technologies and, and ways of doing things before the Industrial Revolution. And almost by definition, they are very sustainable, uh, very low energy efficient because, yeah, there was not an ample source of, of cheap abundant energy. We just had to do with the very little that we had. And that made people very inventive in a way. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. In this month's episode of The Restart Project, I talk to Chris Dedecker, journalist and founder of Low Tech Magazine and creator of its solar-powered website. A central part of Dedecker's philosophy is the need for us as a society to realise the true cost of the energy that we use. In our conversation, we discuss how both his written work and his artistic projects explore the idea that reverting to simple technologies could help us to reach the more sustainable future that we all so desperately need. My name is Chris Decker and I am a journalist, basically. I started my career as a freelance journalist in science and technology. And then after 10 years, I started my own magazines called Low Tech Magazine. And based on what I learned from my days as a high tech journalist, let's say, I started uh, realizing that trying to fix things with more technology is often not the way to go. And so I started focusing on that. And yeah, we're 12 years further. And I'm still uh, writing Lotec magazine. I guess, as is implied from that introduction, you have very specific views on high tech and renewable energy. Can you explain a little bit more about your philosophy and how you first got interested in this topic? Yeah, so I'm obviously not against technologies. I'm kind of a nerd. <laughs> I love technology. I love to play with technology. I love to build things. But I'm not particularly fond of the new technologies because of many reasons like for example my laptop is a 2006 uh, thinkpad yeah i bought it for 50 euros secondhand and nobody's gonna take it away and i don't want to change it for a new laptop because new laptops are not as good as this one i mean this one is built to last and it's just a reality that the further you go back in time, the better the products were. And that's a bit strange. We call it technological progress, but in my opinion, it's it's the opposite. So whether it's cars or computers or phones or food, it seems to get worse and worse in terms of quality. And maybe the quantity increases, but the quality goes backwards. So that made me investigate technologies from the past. I found it intriguing that that many technology books, they usually start with a little bit of history and then it always starts like in the 20th century, as if that's when his history started. But of course, there's like at least 10,000 years of civilization before that. 
if you look at whatever topic in a much wider historical context, you get very different answers and things become really new in a way because we invented many, many technologies and, and ways of doing things before the Industrial Revolution. And almost by definition, they are very sustainable, uh, very low energy efficient because, yeah, there was not an ample source of, of cheap abundant energy. We just had to do with the very little that we had. And that made people very inventive in a way. And yeah, that was a kind of path I started walking. And the more I researched, the more things come up. And it's a never-ending source of knowledge. There's a phrase in, in the UK that people use, a poacher turned gamekeeper. You've gone from like one side to the other side. You were doing stuff around high tech and now you're completely committed to low tech. Well, it's a very gradual process. It's not that I changed from one day to the other. It's also not so easy. I believe very much that you have to practice what you preach from kind of a moral viewpoint, but also because it really makes you understand how difficult or easy it is. So it's like a research position. Like if you say, I don't want a smartphone, which I really don't want, you can write that, but you can also do it. And when you do it, you notice how difficult it is. I also decided uh, gradually like, okay, I'm writing low-tech magazine. I cannot keep flying. It's it's ridiculous. It's hypocritical. But then you, you learn like, okay, I take the train, but th that's not so easy. It costs a lot of money. It takes you a lot of time. The world becomes bigger again. I mean, going to Finland, for example, that's a very long way from Spain, while it's just a few hours of flying. So it's a gradual process that is still ongoing. So I keep trying to live more low tech. I don't want to go back to the 19th century or that's not my point either. So it's more about what can you learn from the past and putting new technologies to good use, like using them when they're really, when they're really useful. A lot of your work draws inspiration by looking at historical ways of creating energy. Why do you think that we need to draw from the past and how could this return to low tech impact the environment and how could it impact our lives? Yeah, I think a good example is renewable energies. There's a lot of talk these days about renewable energy, solar power, wind power especially. And of course, they are nothing new. I mean, we had windmills for 2000 years and we've also been using solar power power forever because basically wood is solar power converted into biomass and, and then we burn it and that's also solar power. I think windmills are especially interesting because they took over a lot of mechanical work that we had to do ourselves as a human powered society. So they made life easier, but they use them very differently in, than we do now. So for example, in countries like the Netherlands, where you had a huge number of industrial windmills, of course, they had no bad batteries, they had no way to store the energy when there was no wind. So they used a strategy that I think we could use again, and that's just to use the wind when it's available. And the same for solar power. Instead of building this whole infrastructure of energy storage and transmission lines, and that is dependent on fossil fuel energy, it's doesn't come for nothing. It's not for free. It makes the whole idea of renewable energy much more unsustainable. So why don't we just let our factories run on wind and or sun when it's available? And if there's no wind or sun, well, then just don't run your factories. Up to a certain extent, that's an idea that could work perfectly well in a modern society with modern factories. I mean, it doesn't work for everything, but 
a lot of basic industrial processes that we are doing now, well, they're the same as that we did 1,000 years ago. It's cutting things, drilling things, polishing things. There's no difference in that. I also learned that there's people actually following this line of thinking. And so they're scientists. I mean, they're, they're not a majority, obviously. But, for example, scientists who made solar cells using concentrated sunlight instead of fossil fuels. I think it's very interesting that you kind of use very simple technology because this concentrated solar power that dates from 19th century, it's just mirrors and glass. And you use it to make a high-tech 21st century product like a computer chip. And obviously you're going to produce less of them and production may be seasonal, but I don't think it's a problem. I mean, the, the biggest problem we have these days is that we're producing way too much stuff just to keep the economy running, but it's not really what people need. It's what the economy needs to keep growing. Also, you see in, in the historical use of wind energy, yeah, they didn't convert everything, the energy to electricity and then back to mechanical power. They just applied the mechanical power directly. What we do now is we have a, a windmill that turns mechanical energy and then you convert it to electricity and then you convert it back to mechanical energy to saw a, a tree into. But you can just connect the mechanical mechanism to the saw and then you win a lot of energy. You don't have that much loss in your process. And I think that there is a lot of opportunities because our way of doing things is extremely inefficient. We, we call it efficient, but if you look in a wider context, if you consider the whole system, it's very inefficient. For example, cooking water with electricity from a power plant that's running on coal. Put whatever you want to cook on top of a coal stove and you're way more efficient than the so-called modern way. You often cite the internet, for example, as something that is high tech, but is less sustainable than we believe it to be. Can you tell us about the project that you've got involving a solar powered website and how that works and how it compares to a normal website? It normal is in inverted commas, if that wasn't clear in my speech. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm writing about all technologies. It's considered quite radical, my point of view, I guess. And I often got the comment like, man, come on, you're telling us to be critical of high tech, but then you're using the internet to let us know. And of course, what else should I do? I, I want my stories to be read. But at the same time, I thought like, hey, let's see if, if we can also make a low tech website in the meaning like low tech, not using the latest technologies. The interesting thing is that the philosophy of low tech magazine, like whatever problem you have, you're looking for a solution, look to the past. And it was very interesting to learn that the same is true in internet design. It's growing really fast, energy use of the internet. And if you go back to the beginnings, the 1990s, the first websites of the World Wide Web, they were made in a very different way than today. Today we have dynamic websites. And those days they made static websites. And a dynamic website is a very energy hungry thing because it 
doesn't really exist. It has to be generated. Every page needs to be generated every time someone visits it. And we do that because it makes it interactive. So if you like something, if you comment, it immediately appears. But on a static website, it's just like basically opening a file on your computer. It, you open the document and there is the document. So it's always the same unless you start editing it. Our website is now a static website. And so it's so low energy, actually, compared to the old website that it becomes possible to host it yourself on a very small server. It uses between one and two watts of power. And that also means that, yeah, if it's so little, then I can power it myself. So I self-hosted the website here in my home and I put a solar panel on the balcony and it's now powered by the solar panel. And I live in a sunny region. I'm near to Barcelona in Spain, so there's a lot of sun. But of course, not always. So to keep it online, like 100% of the time, what most hosting companies promise, you need quite a big battery and that increases the costs, but also it makes the system way more unsustainable because of these batteries that only last a few years. And it's very heavy metal stuff that you need a lot of mining, fossil fuel energy. So I decided to use a very small battery. And when it's bad weather, well, the site just goes offline and you have to come back when the weather gets better. I think we do well to get used to the idea of things being there seasonally in technological terms, as well as in other terms, particularly with all of the things going on in the world globally at the moment, we need to sort of like get used to sometimes not having access to everything exactly when we want it, like 100% of the time straight away. Yeah, like you, you see now we're all confined to our homes. You order something, you have to go to Amazon to order something because all the shops are closed, at least here in Spain. But then you see like, oh, I have to wait two months before it arrives. So in a way, it suddenly came very quickly like you cannot have it all. And I think the same for websites. I mean, there's two reasons why the energy use on the internet increases. Like the pages get heavier, which is why we made a lightweight website, but also because we are more often online because... 10 years ago, it was just sitting on your desk, connecting to the internet, but now it's the smartphone, the, the tablets. And, and I don't think it's also very healthy mentally to be constantly looking at the screens. I think that... It would not hurt to have websites with opening hours or uh, would depend on the weather. I mean, there's many ways to limit stuff. This is just one of them. It's interesting that you say that. I think websites with opening hours, things like that, would also help people to have better working lives and working conditions. Like most of us now are available 24-7 because we've got these smartphones and our work emails come into them. And like we're, we're there brushing our teeth and we're getting emails, you know, in the middle of the night. And if we had working hours for our websites, then that would help to encourage the idea that employers don't require our work 24-7 and all of those kinds of things. Do people show different behaviours when using a solar-powered site than they do when they use other websites? We put some clues on, on the website. We have a weather report that you can see when bad weather is coming. So you can kind of adapt to the conditions of the weather, basically. And we put a battery meter there that you see what's the level of the battery. And people are quite enthusiastic about the whole project. But what's also interesting is that many are giving tips to improve the uptime of the website. So, for example, many people advise, like, why don't you put servers in different parts of the world so that when the sun goes down here that comes up there 
so that it's always online. And another remark that's been made a lot is if the website goes down, what happens now is like, yeah, you just get a default page from Google saying this website is not available, which is, of course, a bit annoying, especially if you don't know the website and you just think it's broken or something. So they advise us, why don't you put a second website that then says that the website is offline? But of course, that completely defeats the whole purpose because then you need another server that's grid powered to say that the other one is offline. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not normal to use your word to have a website that's not always there. But we noticed that, especially like in the web design community, it, people welcomed it because I think those people know that what they are building is quite crappy product. I mean, and of course, they have to build what, what their clients want often. But yeah, these days, okay, I'm on my old laptop here. So I notice extra well when I enter an extremely badly made website, my whole computer freezes because you, you open the page and there's a video that starts playing by itself and stuff like that. And there's like three, four pop-ups and it's like, what, what happened to the internet? You know, it, it was not like that. It was um, text and images. So what we did, for example, to make a very lightweight website is to dither the images. So we compressed them to like one tenth of their size and then we, uh, we stripped them of their colors. It's a very old technique that really made a, a very big difference in the, the size of the, of the page. So it loads extremely fast, although that was not really the, the intention. We just wanted to make a lightweight website that could be solar powered. So you see that you gain sustainability, but also kind of performance. We're among the fastest websites that are existing. And at the same time, we are accessible for people everywhere in the world because we call it the World Wide Web. But uh, half of, of the people are, even if they're connected to the Internet, they have even older computers than I do. And they cannot possibly access any of our websites that we make because they're just too heavy for them. They have old computers, but also bad Internet connections. Sometimes I get a mail from someone deep down the jungle somewhere that says like, great, finally a website I can read. Making it static, uh, dithering the images, those were, I guess, the most important steps we took. And then there's a lot of uh, smaller uh, things we did. It's, it's so interesting what you're saying about people asking you to put servers in different places and make it so that it's a 24-7 available website when... Back in the day, when we wanted to read magazines, we had to, you know, go and, <laughs> and buy them or like go to the library. I used to work in libraries and we would have a, a range of magazines that people would only be able to access when they had time to come into the library. Now they can access stuff 24-7 anyway. And if your website happens to be down for a period of time, it seems strange that they're like, we need to solve that rather <laughs> than go, yeah, you know, sometimes, sometimes they haven't got the magazine, you know. A friend's borrowed the magazine, so I haven't got it till they give it me back. That's not something where I feel like I can do something about it. But now we've changed to digital. We feel like we can do something about these things. As we've already mentioned, we're currently in the middle of a pandemic, which is causing people to work from home and to stay in more. There has been a noticeable increase in internet usage and big streaming sites are kind of reducing the quality of what they put out, which seems like they're learning lessons from what you're doing. So what other lessons do you think we might learn in this period of time from your approach and the, the work that you've been doing? I found it indeed very interesting that uh, companies like Netflix reduce 
reduce their resolution because a few years ago in an article, I kind of proposed it as a solution and suddenly it's happening. So we see that we can solve things pretty fast if we really want to. But yeah, this whole pandemic thing, yeah, what I'm a bit worried about is we had already a trend towards more individualism, like everybody for themselves. I mean, if you look, that's a, a historical trend that's quite important that we used to be much more of a community. We had bigger families, we had closer ties with the community. And now this is really accelerated through this pandemic. So we're even more on ourselves. I find it a bit hard to say like, hey, this is a, an opportunity to live low-tech because for me, living low-tech is especially also doing more things among people and not using technology. I mean, I often say that we don't need technological innovation, we need social innovation. And that's pretty difficult at the moment for even the most basic things that I would ask my neighbors or my friends, I now have to turn to Amazon or, or just don't do them. Yeah, I mean, it, I agree. I think it's very early days to get a sense of how this is all going to play out in the different kinds of parts of the shock of it that come afterwards with the businesses, economies, all of these things, and also the effect of being sort of afraid of social interaction. Like we literally are a danger to each other. There are some positives that are coming out of that too. The growth of mutual aid groups and, and neighbours actually, where I live, people are more likely to say hello from a distance because they want to acknowledge how weird these times are. started an experiment in 2017 called the Human Power Plant. Can you tell us a bit more about it and what the motivations for doing that project were? The Human Power Plant is an art project because I'm a journalist. I found it interesting to investigate the same themes through art because you can do more in a way. It's different. It's based on a very simple question that is, could we run a modern society on human power alone? So all the energy that we use is human powered. And it sounds like a silly question, but it actually generates lots of insights, especially in energy use. Because the thing with human power, which is of course historically the most important power source for the most period of history, when you have to generate your own power, you're gonna think twice about the amount of power you need. So it actually puts the question central, like how much energy do we need? We don't ask ourselves this question now because energy is so cheap. It seems like it's infinite. I mean, you use as much electricity and gasoline as you want, as long as you can pay it. But for most of us in the first world is not a problem. And that is uh, central in, say, making a transition to a sustainable society. You have to look at this energy use because it's not just that it's high. It's also that it keeps increasing. Everything just keeps getting more energy intensive. By imagining a world that is completely run on human power, you see where the problems are. Like, for instance, we made a human-powered student building. So, I mean, we didn't really build it, but we projected the idea on an existing building on a campus in uh, the Netherlands. It has 700 students living there and everything is human powered. So the heating, showering, we took out the elevators, there's only stairs. The interesting thing is that, for example, computers, 
use internet, that was not such a big problem in the end because it's quite of low energy, but the showering was the big problem. Taking a shower is so energy intensive. If you don't have oil or gas, heating water takes a lot of effort. So we had to reduce shower times to one minute per day. And then we also discussed with students there on the campus and then some were like, yeah, but we're exercising for a few hours a day. So then we may take a cold shower or we may wash ourselves at the sink. And then suddenly you see that all these old ways of doing things coming back. And also older people, they were like, yeah, well, I never take a shower because I was not raised like that in their 60s, 70s. They grew up without showers and they know how to do things before. If you look critically at how energy use evolved, you learn that you can actually have a human powered student building and that it actually works with just a couple of hours per day of exercise, which we are doing. And many of us are, are addicted to it, actually. But then the power is wasted. Right. Your project is reminding me of... Uh... A theatre piece I saw that some friends of mine made 15, 20 years ago. It was set in a post-apocalyptic world where all energy had to be produced by the central protagonist on the stage. And he was getting on a bike, cycling, 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 and that would make the light turn on and it would boil his water and things like that. And it was making it really clear that like any time he wanted any kind of energy, he had to exhaust himself on this bike. And it was a very powerful kind of theatrical way of showing the kind of idea that you're talking about. And there's places where there's rooms full of people cycling on exercise bikes. And maybe it would be great to kind of connect up all of those exercises with our power grids as much as possible and make some sustainability from human energy. I'd never really thought about our capacity to to create energy in that way. You said previously that the human power plant experiment was born out of noticing an irony between a university campus that uses massive amounts of energy but is working towards being carbon neutral by 2030. How do you see that irony playing out in the worldwide discussion about sustainability that we're currently having? Yeah, it's everywhere. And it's good you mentioned this because actually we were invited by the municipality of Utrecht in the Netherlands to do a project on the campus of the university. And in the beginning, they have like, I don't know, five or six sustainability managers there. In the beginning, they were willing to cooperate. But when they saw what we were doing and actually kind of questioning what they were doing, they got very much against us and they tried to sabotage our work and they stopped cooperating. It's not just uh, universities, but it's also on, on all kinds of levels, like countries, for example, they kind of have understood now that people want a more sustainable society. And then they come with all kinds of plans that are very often completely unrealistic. Like, yeah, let's put the, the North Sea full of wind turbines and, and it's solved. And then you go like, okay, now let's calculate how much space you need for that, how many batteries, what space is already taken in the North Sea for other things how much metals you need for that. You have to replace the wind turbines because they're not lasting for 3,000 years. Politicians are just floating wild ideas that have no foundation in reality. It's just completely wishful thinking. And why? Because they don't want to start talking about people we should actually lower energy use and adapt our lifestyles. And that's what they're afraid of. 
And so they take their flight into technological solutions that are promising that we can have it both, that we can have economical growth and sustainability at the same time. Yeah, it would be great if it could happen, but nobody has been able to convince me that it's even possible. I mean, the Netherlands have now decided that we go off the gas, so they will stop using uh, natural gas, which they are producing themselves, which is great. But then if you see how they're going to do it, you really question that they get very nervous because they don't know. They don't really know how they're going to do it. There again, with art, you could try to somehow communicate this with them. Because we're now in a new project with the human power plant for the city of Rotterdam. We're having the same problems. Like they have their idea. They are like, our idea is to change from natural gas to something that is more sustainable. They don't know what that something is going to be. But that message we cannot question. While, of course, that's exactly what needs to be questioned. Yeah, there's still a lot of work to do, I think. When we think about sustainability, people often don't think about like just having less just doing less like it's always like we've got to keep the same level of everything but make it sustainable and it's like well that might not be possible how do we as a society need to relearn our approach to energy consumption in order to create a more sustainable future and where does energy used in production and manufacture fit into this bigger picture yeah i think it's essentially an economical problem you have constantly this new product and like the smartphones that we were talking about i mean in itself there's nothing wrong with the smartphone what's really wrong with the smartphone is that we get a new one every two years because the energy use of these things is not in in charge them, the energy use is in making them, producing them, because they have such a short lifetime. The total energy use is almost completely production. So why do we keep doing that? In my opinion, it's not because we have this inborn need to change our phone every two years. It's something that is driven out of an economical perspective. Like you have an economical system that needs growth to keep going. It's not that we need these things. It's more like this whole system needs that we keep buying new stuff. And that's also why, because we already have so much stuff, things are now made like new laptops that you cannot screw them open anymore. Like my ThinkPad, you can screw everything open. It's modular. You can replace and repair everything yourself. That's not possible anymore. And why is that? Because they want us to keep consuming and they want the economy to keep running. So you cannot solve this whole problem without looking at the economical system. And that is, of course, the difficult part. I mean, we now see with this crisis that the government actually has powers to do things. Like the government says to Netflix, you lower the resolution. They're even uh, nationalizing some sectors of the economy in some countries. Please, let's not go to the Soviet Union times. But I think the economical system should be remade in a way. I'm, I'm not an economist. I focus on technology because it's less abstract than economy. It's easier to get people involved. But it's actually about the same thing. High tech is economy. And we have this constant focus on high tech. And now we have 5G. And I mean, do we need 5G in uh, 
we can be happy with 4G or even 3G, but there are other people who need it to keep their companies growing and to keep the whole machine running. But that's the difficult part because, yeah, that's also where the power is these days, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Restart follow the philosophy that it is better to repair electronic devices than to buy new ones. We hope that manufacturers will return to more modular devices like your laptop so that they are more easily repairable. But your work almost takes this even further by provoking us on the sufficiency in relation to electronics and digital products. What is enough digital and what can be analog or a simple machine? Yeah, that's an interesting question because without really realizing it, I'm kind of having a small museum here of laptops and typewriters and stuff like that and everything in between. Of course, most of the time I'm using my laptop because I'm running a website and I have to email and stuff like that. But still, when I want to write, it helps to get one of these machines because it makes you concentrate on what you're doing. You don't get distracted by all kinds of notifications and updates and news. And I think that indeed we could learn from these analog machines. I don't want to get rid of computers, obviously. I think they're very handy machines. I would like to use them a bit less. The, the problem is that everything is happening on a computer these days. Eh? You see now people who used to draw on paper, they're now making uh, drawings on their computer. People who were using musical instruments are now doing it on the computer. And in the end, everything is on one machine. I also think that you lose a lot of things like um, I used to play the bass guitar, I mean, it's a very different feeling than making music on a laptop. There's a physical thing that's missing in computers, and that's not necessarily incompatible. Like, one idea I have is to manage your laptop. Everything happens through the graphical interface, but why don't we have more buttons and stuff like that? Like a big kind of gear to lower the resolution of the screen or uh, to switch between things, to make it more physical and mechanical, that you have to do more than just move your finger. Like a typewriter is a good example. If you're writing a text on an old-fashioned mechanical typewriter, there's a certain kind of rhythm in that, a physical rhythm. Like, first you have to use more force to make the text appear, but also you come at the end of the line and then you give it one of these... Uh, you smash it back to the other side. And somehow it's very rewarding to have this more physical interaction with the machine. Yeah, every computer looks the same. I don't see computers with big handles and things to pull on, things to push, big buttons or I don't know what, what else. Yeah, nobody really seemed to have looked into that. One of the main things that came out of my conversation with Chris is the idea that we need to have a re-evaluation of what is enough. And as we discussed, that is also something that is coming out of our experience of this global pandemic. This emphasis on the capabilities of low tech is not a call for us to travel back in time. It is instead a call for us to work out what we need now in this present moment and what we can learn from the ways that things have been done in the past and from alternative approaches to the ways that we do things now. By doing that, we can hopefully get some insight into how to build 
a truly sustainable way to live in harmony with the technology that we use, both in terms of our individual lives and experiences and in terms of the larger systems and structures that surround us. Chris offers us some fascinating perspectives and ideas, shows what can be done and challenges our preconceptions about what technology is, how it can be used and what we need from our technology. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Holly, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.